So it was 26 years ago this week that I first went to a church that preached the gospel and I first believed the gospel. And I remember that because it was after Ash Wednesday. It was the Sunday after Ash Wednesday. And I grew up in a Roman Catholic family and we were, I would say, nominal Catholics at best. We went to Mass on Sunday, but there was not devotion in our home. But as I grew up, I had that kind of religious background, and I'd say around the age of 14 or so, I discovered drugs and music. And that became my life's pursuit for about 10 or 11 years. And... As I pursued that kind of life, I realized in my early 20s that these things were greater than I could handle. What I mean is I was an overachiever when it came to self-destructive behaviors. And I really admired my friends who could party on the weekend and then turn it off and have a you know, normal, capable existence. And I just was not that kind of person. And so it was around that time I started to realize, wow, I need some help. It was also around that time where I think God was awakening my conscience. And I started to think, well, I should probably, in my pursuit of cleaning myself up, trying to set up restraint for myself, I should probably acknowledge God and I should probably start doing some things to show Him that I'm thinking about Him. So Lent was that time in my thinking that I could, I could sacrifice something for him. And I've probably told you the story before. I gave up smoking pot one Lent, and I gave up smoking cigarettes one Lent, and I failed. Gave up drinking alcohol one Lent. And in my thinking, like doing sacrifices for God was part of the plan of God giving me heaven someday. My thought of standing before God someday was like a scale system, and if you did more good things than bad things, uh, God was going to save you. And so Lent was my pathetic um, attempt at kind of tipping the scales. Now, it was a mess because I was living a life of sin and debauchery, and giving up one of my sins for 40 days every year seems ridiculous to me. But at the time, you know, my thinking was, this is how you do it. And then I heard the gospel 26 years ago this week or so, and I believed the gospel. I believed what I heard. And what was so profound to me was that the righteousness that God requires, God provides in Jesus. Like, this was just mind-blowing to me. So, I came to love this message of salvation by faith. That it is Christ who has done the work, His perfect sin-atoning death, His perfect sinless life, this great exchange takes place, and my meager faith that I had in Christ was sufficient in God's sight 
to make this exchange happen. And so this was something I wanted people to know. I became part of a very large evangelistic church. Um, So every week, the sermon was focused on the unbeliever. Or at least that's where the sermon went. And there was a plea to accept Christ as your Savior. And there was an altar call to come forward and shake the pastor's hand and recite a prayer. And it was this decision for Christ that we were after. We want people to make a decision for Christ. We want them to have a time of faith in Christ. And the pastor would say, congratulations, you are now part of the kingdom of God. Everybody turn around, welcome your new family members, and everyone would clap. And that's how I just assumed it was done. It's like coming to Christ is like the easiest thing. You just have to put your faith in Him, and then you're saved. So I began studying the Scripture more. I began reading the Bible a lot more. And the more I read, the more I started having problems with this decisional regeneration. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying a prayer to receive Christ. There's nothing wrong with um, asking people to come forward in a service. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. My concern was that it was presented that that decision on that day sealed your eternity and that you were now in a state of salvation that you could not lose, even if you left that building and never gave Christ a minute of your time for the rest of your life. There are Bible tracts you can read, and at the back it says, if you prayed this prayer, congratulations, you are now saved. Sign it, date it, and don't let anyone tell you any different. So I began to have a problem with that because I began to discover in the Scriptures that salvation is much more than this one-time decision that a person makes. That salvation that God is doing in the life of a person is much more than a momentary thing where He takes them out of the kingdom of darkness and puts them into the kingdom of light And if they become an atheist later in life, it's okay because they're still saved. There are churches that believe and teach that. I have a serious problem with that. And here's here's where I've landed on this. Salvation, or the the time a person first believes, is not the beginning, sorry, is not the end of something, as if, oh good, did you hear about Joe? He just got saved. Oh, Thank God we'll see Him in heaven someday. It's treated as if it's the end of something. But really, it's the beginning of something. And the beginning is that act of God saving you all the way to the end. So salvation is God saving them when they first believe and then keeping them so that they remain believing and then bringing them all the way to the end so that when they stand before God, they have a life of exercising faith. In other words, theirs was a life that was lived in relationship to God that was more wonderful and much more biblical than this idea that you can depart from Christ for decades 
and still be saved. What I discovered was that for those who are in Christ today, it is not because of a decision they once made, but because God is at work in them now and continuing to save them today. So I'm going to be very repetitive so to avoid any misunderstanding. Salvation, I don't believe biblically, can be reduced to an event that happens when someone believes, and that's all salvation is, and then they can fall away and still gain heaven. Rather, salvation is demonstrated in the person believing, and then the person continuing to believe all the way to the end. And that is the work of God. That is my proposition, and that is what I want to argue the Scripture teaches. So I thought we would walk through the New Testament and talk about God's present saving work. So we can start in John chapter 6. Just to give you some context, Jesus has large crowds following Him. He fed them He fed the 5,000. He's got tons of people coming to Him. And He's going to drop some heavy teaching that is going to scatter these crowds. And yet, as He does that, He wants the people to know that the ones that are staying are staying because of God. In other words, God is doing something in them and that's keeping them with Jesus. So, John 6.37 He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So notice in verse 37, there are those who come to Jesus. Now, we can rightfully assume this is the new birth. He's not talking about all of the crowds that are coming to him. He's talking about the true believers because he says these are the ones that the Father has given to him. And they truly become a disciple and they truly remain with him to the end. But how is it that they remain? Well, we discover in verse 39, it is the will of God that Jesus loses none of them given by the Father. So this means they do not lose their salvation. This means they are secure in Him. But notice who is doing the action of keeping them. It is Jesus. He says He will lose none. He says in John chapter 10, none can snatch them out of my hand. Which is a picture of the power of God that is holding on to the believer and not a picture of the believer holding on to Jesus. It also means the person remains with Christ and does not return to their former life. Because Jesus has them and no one's going to snatch them. Now, how do we know? Jesus could mean 
They believed, and so he holds on to them, and even if they don't abide in him, he still has them. Well, if you continue in John, like in John 15, it's very clear, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So, abide means remain. And in John 6, Jesus is talking about those remaining with Him. Jesus is holding on to them. That's why they remain with Him. And He keeps them up until the last day. That means He loses none to this world. He loses none to the devil. He loses none to a person's selfish, destructive appetites that ruin them. You won't shipwreck your faith if you belong to Jesus because His grip is great. He has lost none to this day. He holds them and He keeps them and He does it to the very end. Romans chapter 5. I have to give you context every time. I don't like just hopping in. So, Paul has just finished explaining justification by faith in chapters 3 and 4, meaning that it is by faith alone that a person becomes justified. And then he says in Romans 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, okay, that's a past action with present results, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That is looking toward the future. God is not going to judge and condemn us. And then in verse 10, He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So Paul's main argument here is, if God saved you as his enemy, how much more is he saving you now that you are his friend? If God's attitude toward you was to justify you when you hated God and were an enemy of God, how much more are you being saved today now that you are his beloved? That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 5. Second half of verse 10, much more, he says, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So when salvation is described in the New Testament, sometimes it is a reference to a past event, but much of the time it is described as something that God is doing now, and much of the time, it is described as something that God will do in the future. In other words, if we think of our timeline as linear, and you think of your life as linear, we tend to point on the line and say, X marks the spot, that's when I became saved. But the New Testament has a fuller picture of salvation, and it's not punctiliar like that where it's a point in time. It's the whole thing. Yes, there was a moment where you were justified and you entered into salvation, but what God does from that is keep you in salvation all the way to the end. 
And when he reconciled you at that one point in time, he put within you the very life of God. And what God is doing in your life today surpasses what he did at that first time you believed. Now I say surpasses because Paul says here much more. So check this out. He says the past event of justification was important, but look how God is saving you now. That's what I think he's saying here. Christ's death secured your salvation in the past, but look look what he's doing in 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 your life now through the life of God in you. That's what he says, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? It's a lesser to the greater argument. Now this requires meditation, and if you want to make a little note next to Romans 5, study this later to make sure the pastor is not teaching heresy, you can do that. I invite you to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We know about the church in Corinth. They were a messed up church. Paul calls them brothers. He writes to them as Christian believers. He even says this in verse 7. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The New American Standard says, who will also confirm you to the end. The NIV says, he will also keep you firm to the end. So the idea in modern evangelicalism, it's very popular, especially in very large evangelical churches, is that you can make a one-time decision That decision places you in the kingdom of God regardless of what your life looks like five years or ten years or twenty years down the road. It is your profession of faith that is sufficient for your entry into heaven. But the testimony in the New Testament again and again is that if God was at work in your life then, in that moment, He will be at work in your life now because, verse 8, Jesus Himself will sustain you to the end. He won't let you fall away. He won't let you be snatched away. There is a power at work within believers that keeps them in Christ. And Jesus is that power. We just sang it earlier. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, And I am sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing to believers in Philippi. He planted that church. He has seen their faith. And he writes to encourage them that the good work that God began, God will complete. So the same one who began it, that's the time that you believed, is the same one who will complete it, meaning you will believe all the way to the end. God's work does not include you becoming an atheist, my goodness. So God doesn't begin a work and then fail to complete that work. Isn't that good news? And this is meant to be an encouragement to you because it's a reminder that if you believe today, that's because God is at work in you. Now, this seems so much more wonderful to me than some idea that your name has been written in a heavenly book because you exercised faith at one point in your life and now God has some kind of legal obligation to save you even though you go and live like the devil. And I know there are well-meaning Christians who want to see people come to Christ. They want to... They want to bring Christ to the world, but they give this very weak, watered-down message, and it's trying to get people to make a decision, and it's like, please pray this prayer with me before you change your mind. Now, what kind of salvation is that, that the person could recite something and then leave the building, never give Christ a second thought, and somehow we feel comfortable in saying that that person is a Christian? The beauty of the Gospel is, if that profession of faith was genuine, and many times it is, the evidence of that genuine faith is that God continues to be at work in you now. He will never give up. He will never leave you. He will bring you all the way to the end. That is the picture of biblical salvation. Now, if you think I'm just making this stuff up, let me pause here and give you a theological definition. This is from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology under the section of Perseverance. Burkhoff writes, Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes His work that believers continue to stand to the very end. So God does a work in someone's life, and because God is at work in them, they will continue believing. Now, does this mean that we come to Christ and then we just put our lives on cruise control? 
Does this mean that we come to Christ and we just sit back and do what comes naturally? Absolutely not. I often wish that were the case. But we are commanded to obey. We are commanded to repent. We are commanded to deny ourselves. We are commanded to trust the Lord over and over and over. In fact, God gives very severe warnings in the Bible of what's going to happen if we don't. And it's anything but cruise control. But even in our striving, even in that clinging that we're doing in response, God is the one doing the work. And there is a perfect balance that Paul lays out in the same book, chapter 2, Philippians Verse 12, you know these verses. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Look at this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So this holds these two ideas in perfect tension. Notice your obligation is to obey. God does not say, cruise along and I'm going to do everything. He says, work it out. Meaning, your life is His and you are to serve Him and you are to submit to Him. And by serving and submitting, His life in you becomes manifest. But the key ingredient here is that God is at work. And notice this. He says He not only does the work through you, but He gives you the will to do it. Verse 13 again. For it is God who works in you both to will, that means desire, that means motivation, and to work for His good pleasure. So let me ask you, why did you wake up this morning believing? Why did you wake up this morning with any desire for any of the things of God? Why did you desire to come to church? Why do you desire to have fellowship with other believers? Why do you grieve when you do not obey Him? It's because it is this continual, sustaining work of Christ in you. Not just the good works through you, but the will to do them. Now, this is a picture of God saving you now. In other words, salvation started when you believed, and I'm not denying that at all. You were justified. But the evidence that your justification was real is that God is at work in you today. And we have to put off this mindset that we can have unbelieving family members or friends who made a profession of faith at one point in their life and today they, ha- they want nothing to do with Christ. They haven't been to church in 20 years. And what we say in response to that, well, he's saved. He's just not walking with the Lord. 
I mean, I've heard that a hundred times. But how long can someone be a true believer and not walk with the Lord? Months? Years? Decades? The testimony of Scripture is that the one who is truly Christ's remains with Christ and does the will of Christ because it is the work of God within them. Now don't hear me say that you come to Christ and your life is this perfect, perfect, blameless life. We are knuckleheads. We are stiff-necked. We have seasons of backsliding. We have seasons where we just, just, God is just not talking to me and I just do not feel like going to church or reading my Bible or praying. I'm not saying we have this life where we are floating two feet off the ground with a golden ring over our heads. But what I am saying is, That if your profession of faith was real, God is in the process of saving you now and you will bear good fruit. You must, in fact. You must. And if we see someone who has turned their back on God, even if they made a solid profession of faith at one point, we cannot assume that person is a Christian. I mean, the Bible gives us many examples. Jesus talks about this thing all the time in the Gospels. Look at the parables. True believer, false believer. I mean, so many of the parables. The wise and the foolish virgins. The good and the bad fish. The sheep and the goats. The goats call Him Lord. I mean, it's like the true versus the false. Paul, Paul mentions certain people by name who were on missionary journeys with him. And they departed from the faith and he does not say they're just not walking with the Lord right now. He says they've gone, they have departed. John says they went out from us because they were not of us. Again, This does not mean we cannot have periods of disbelief and doubt and get tangled up with the wrong crowd again. I mean, I want to have much grace here. But we have to put away this idea that because someone we know made a profession of faith as a little kid and they have no interest in God whatsoever and if you even bring it up, they are hostile to it. I have a feeling that person's not in Christ. Here's a good litmus litmus test for you. If you bring up Jesus to a professing Christian and they get angry, there's a good chance that they don't have the spirit of Jesus. Now again, people could fall into sin. They could be blinded for a time. I want to give grace to that, but I do want to also say that person does not have assurance if they are walking in that way. The Bible will not give them assurance. 
I have known people that I was certain were genuine believers. I remember a guy at our church in San Diego. He and I were sort of, this does not sound right, but up and coming in our church in the sense that we were taking on, you know, leadership and, 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 and uh, the pastor was giving us opportunities to teach and I ended up going to seminary and I remember writing to him saying, hey man, you got to come, you should come to seminary, it's amazing, I'm learning so much and he had moved away to Arizona and worked at a restaurant and make a long story short, he divorced his wife and ran off with one of the waitresses at the restaurant and started a family with her and thought he was going to become the next Johnny Cash. So, this is someone I was certain was a real believer. But time revealed his heart and his heart was not Christ's and now some 15, 18 years later he continues to reject Christ. So it's not a profession of faith that we make that demonstrates that we're true believers, but it's that we remain with Him today and we remain with Him today because God is at work in us to keep us staying with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5. This is a benediction I read at the end of the service. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek word kept here means to watch over, to guard to protect. You may notice this is a passive verb here. It is be kept, meaning that God is the agent who is keeping us. Paul is not saying here, boy, wouldn't it be nice if God held on to us? But he's ending his letter to them with a blessing, and that blessing is based on the promises of God that he will not let go of you. So if you are in Jesus Christ, you are being kept. The work began with reconciliation and it continues to the day of His return or the time you go to be with Him. Picking up the pace a little bit, Hebrews chapter 7. I have to give you some context here. The writer is comparing Melchizedek of the Old Testament with Christ in the New. So Melchizedek was this Old Testament priest who was not of the lineage of Aaron, but he had no beginning, he had no end, he just sort of arrives on the scene, he blesses Abraham, and then he disappears again. Very strange, mysterious figure and the writer is arguing that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, not a priest like Aaron. All of Aaron's sons, they lived and they died. They lived and they died over and over. A priesthood that was temporary. But Jesus is a high priest that remains forever. And that's his 
argument there. And so he says in 25, verse 25 of chapter 7, Consequently, or because of this, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So the picture he paints in Hebrews is that just as in the earthly tabernacle, the priest would go in and make intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel, Jesus is in the heavenly tabernacle, He enters the Holy of Holies, and He intercedes on behalf of the people of God in the presence of God. And the writer says, this is a work that He is doing presently. That means your salvation is much more wonderful than a one-time event where God accepts you at a point in the past, but rather it is a process that God is doing today and it is a continual process all the way to the end. And do you know why Jesus needs to intercede for you? Because you need it. Because you're just like me. We are knuckleheads. If the power of God is not keeping us in Christ, we will wander. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful paths. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And so He does this for you all the way to the end, which is what it means here that He saves to the uttermost. It means He saves to the end He saves all the way. He saves through all time. So He loves you that much. This is God loving you. This is God loving you continually in that it's not just a legal transaction. It is a continual work that God is doing. I know I'm being repetitive. I want to be repetitive. Now, Even when it doesn't feel like God is loving you, He's still loving you. Mark brought this out in a sermon maybe six months ago. That when we are convicted, when we feel guilty, when we feel ashamed when we sin, and and we have those horrible feelings, that is God loving us. Conviction of sin is God loving you. When a true believer begins to drift away off course, which all believers do at some point, God pursues them to bring them back and He convicts them of sin so that they will return to Him and that also is the work of God in you. In fact, A little bit later in Hebrews 12, the writer describes this. Hebrews 12, verse 6 through 8. He says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Meaning, if God is not spanking you once in a while, you're not really His kid. So there's a big difference between the unbeliever and the believer because the unbeliever sins and he rationalizes it. Or he makes excuses for it. Or he doesn't think it's that big of a deal. And the child of God sins and we recognize that God is holy and that His righteousness is beautiful and good and that we have fallen short of it and we want to get back so that we are walking in the light with Him and not being in the darkness. And so God does that work in the believer to bring them back on course. Now, your unbelieving neighbor does not have that kind of struggle. He may be discouraged that he doesn't have self-control or he may find some of his behaviors to be detrimental to his own happiness, which was my case prior to Christ, but he's not troubled that he has offended a holy God and you are, and when you are troubled, that is God loving you also. We'll look at two more. And then I think I've made my point. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That's past justification. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's future glorification. So he talks about past justification. He talks about future glorification. And then he says this, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So look what's happening in between those two things. You've got the time you believed you got the time you will be glorified, and that period of time in between is you being guarded. Once again, this is a word that means to protect or to keep watch over. And it is very important that you understand that we were justified in the past when we believed. It is very important that you understand that in the future there is glorification awaiting those who believe. And it is important for you to know that the period of time in between those two points is a time when you are secure. But the question is, why are you secure? And the answer Peter gives us is because you are kept secure. And he says through faith. And even that, we are told, is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2. 
So God loved you then. God will love you on that day. And God loves you continually now by keeping you to the end. Last one. Jude, we looked at this a few months ago. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, I argued when I preached this message, I talked about how you have a footnote in the ESV that says, um, kept by Jesus Christ as an alternate translation. So they are just alerting you to the fact that the Greek could be translated kept by or kept for. And I don't want to argue one way or the other other than the point is that you are being kept. Whether it's for Jesus or whether it's by Jesus. Now drop down to verse 24. He says, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling... I argued in the sermon that stumbling there is not sinning, but it's falling away from Christ. So to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It is God who keeps you from falling away. One of the most wonderful truths about the Gospel is not merely that believers will inherit a place called heaven someday because God has made a legal declaration that they are justified by faith in Jesus. The wonder of the Gospel is that God keeps you all the way to the end. He not only justifies and He will not only glorify, but He will sanctify, meaning He is in the process of saving you now. The reason you believe today, the reason you woke up trusting in Jesus today, The reason you have not abandoned the faith like some of those people that you may know is not some inherent goodness found within you, but it is the saving work of God within you. Let us pray. Lord, what wonderful news the Gospel is. How marvelous. How wonderful that You would not only save us, but that You would keep us to the very end. Oh Lord, what comfort that gives me. What hope that gives me. That there is a fountain within me that is trusting in Christ and that itself comes from You. And that You will never remove it from me. I pray that this Word be an encouragement to Your people. And if there are any here today who do not know You, may they be drawn to Christ by Your irresistible grace and may they too
be partakers of these promises, that you will keep them all the way to the end. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.